know that we've had 164 days since March last year when alcohol has not been allowed to be sold at all for on consumption or off consumption. And that's been spread around four um, periods of alcohol sales bans with the longest lasting for, for 66 days. So um, during those times, the, the government, as I said, stopped alcohol sales completely. At, at times, they stopped the transportation of alcohol and um, you could only cons you could consume it in your own home. I was saying it's a huge social experiment because um, we saw immediately a, a dramatic drop in the the numbers of people patients coming to trauma units with with alcohol related trauma. The, the trauma drop was about sixty percent in some fifty sixty percent, and it was almost instantaneous. And then after the first period of sixty six days on the on the first of June, the ban was lifted. And immediately everything went went crazy again, and the hospitals saw a, a huge rise. And Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, Tribe Leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking alone. You need a community. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week on the podcast, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. And here's a lady from our Sober Spring WhatsApp group. Hi, I'm super excited to be on board this Sober Buzz heading for the Spring Challenge. Already the camaraderie and encouragement is motivation enough to stay on course. Thank you, Janet and team. So if you want to join our community and do a Sober Spring, just go to tribesober.com and check us out. As you may have gathered, I'm from the UK, which is quite a boozy nation. In fact, that's where my dependence on alcohol began. 20 years ago, I moved to South Africa, which also has the reputation for being one of the heaviest drinking countries in the world. In fact, we have the dubious distinction of being number six in the global league table, Alcohol is so normalized in society and so many people are grappling with alcohol dependence that the whole thing sometimes seems hopeless. However, there are people who are working tirelessly to bring about positive change. And this week's guest is one of them. Professor Charles Parry is the head of alcohol and drug unit at the South African Health Medical Research Council. This organization reports directly into the Department of Health and has the overall goal to improve the health of the nation. I began by asking Professor Parry to introduce himself. 
Hey, uh, thank you, Janet. I live in Cape Town, South Africa. My job, I'm the head of the South African Medical Research Council Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drug Research Unit. Um, I am married, I have a son and a daughter, and I live in Mooley Point in Cape Town. And for fun, I am a long distance runner. So I'm running oh. about four or five times a week, either road running or on the mountains. So that's what I, I do to keep balance in my life. Wow, well, you're in a beautiful part of the world to, to go running. I'll look out for you on the promenade. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So this organization that you've been working for for 30 years, wow, I had no idea it, it was so long. Just uh, tell us a bit about it. What are the objectives of the South African Medical Research Council? Yeah, well, the South African Medical Research Council, I suppose, was modelled after the British MRC. So we have what we call intramural research units and extramural units, which we fund at, at universities, and we fund uh, what we call self-initiated research. So it's it's a funding agency, and it also conducts research. And there are about 11 or 12 different intramural units, particularly focusing on non-communicable diseases, infectious diseases, burden of disease. And, you know, I head up one looking at alcohol, tobacco, and other drug use. And um, yeah, we're, we're very, very active in South Africa. The, the aim is really to improve the health of the nation. We we are set up by a parliamentary grant, so we answer to Parliament and we report to the the uh, Ministry of Health. Uh, every year we report to Parliament, and our focus is really improving public health, the health of those who who, who need it most. So it's focusing on most more on the vulnerable sectors of society, but obviously our research is, is relevant to to everybody, and we have a sort of advocacy part too. So the focus is not just on doing research for journal articles. We really want to see research that impacts. The nation, and so we do. You know, we, we get involved a lot with the media and in and in public policy, trying to change legislation and things like that. Yeah, I mean, influencing uh, government policy must be uh, one of one of your goals. I'm sure we'll we'll talk a bit more about that later. Um, let's talk about South Africa's reputation for drinking now. Certainly uh, where I come from, the UK, and I think Australia, heavy drinking countries. Uh, but over here, even more so. In fact, um, I just dis discovered something through listening to you recently that uh, many people in South Africa don't drink at all. But the people that do drink tend to drink really heavily. I mean, about 60% of the drinkers do indulge in, in binge drinking. So it's quite a, a kind of special um, breakdown, isn't it, into how people drink here. And I know that it, it goes back uh, a long time, right back to the DOP system. As well. If I could just say a little bit more about the drinking patterns, because I think it fits in, and you, you did explain it pretty well with, you know, in fact, if you look at the World Health Organization's data, only 31% of adults drink, but 59% of those adults engage in binge drinking at least once a month. And in fact, we are the sixth highest nation in the world in terms of the amount of absolute alcohol consumed per drinker per day at 64 grams, which in South African terms is between five and six drinks. In the UK terms, it would be over six drinks per drinker per day, which is a lot. So we, we're not a moderate drinking nation. We, while many people don't drink, those who do 
drink excessively, and that's that's the problem we have with with heavy drinking. And um, it's not just an issue of the consumers; it's also an issue of those upstream drivers, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. So I think the the industry is also dependent on this culture of heavy drinking to to make the profits that um, their uh, that their shareholders expect. Let me answer your question. So the, we need to look at the origins of heavy drinking. What are some of the factors behind that? And there are a whole lot of them. And you were talking a bit about historical factors. Certainly, alcohol's played an interesting role in South Africa's history. Um, it, it was brought, I mean, originally very much the sort of white settlers sort of introduced um, spirits and those products into, into society. And in fact, um, there were times when it was not possible for the local population to, 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 to buy alcohol. And then it became a tool of, of oppression, really, where um, beer halls were set up, where um, alcohol was sold, particularly beer was sold, and the money, the revenue gained was used to, to, control, to control the population and to run the municipalities, the areas in which the black people lived. And in fact, in the mining, in the mining sector, too, um, many mine workers were brought from from rural areas to work, and there wasn't anything to do in the evening. So they had beer halls where they would spend a lot of the money that they earned on the mines. Obviously, some of the money was sent back to their families, but these single men living far away from home, you know, there wasn't much else for them to do but to to go and drink. So, um, and the companies the companies benefited from that. So alcohol has played a, a very tricky role in South Africa's history. Um, there's um, the DOP system, which is called the TOT system, which on certain farms, particularly in, in the wine and fr- the wine and fruit growing areas in the, in the Western Cape, in in the past, some of the the farm workers were paid their salary partly in in alcohol that they'd get at the end of the day or particularly at the end of the week, and that was sort of included in their in their benefits. That that has been outlawed. And it doesn't exist anymore, although some farmers still give farm workers, um, you know, they can get credit to buy alcohol and then it gets taken out of their salary. So that is the tot system, which created a, a sort of a dependent labor force who who performed quite well in, in you know, working in, in, in the farming community. Um, and... Um, it didn't seem to affect their, their their work too much, but it clearly created a dependency on on the, the, their employer, and you know, was really an unhealthy situation. And it's part of the reason why there was a sort of legacy of the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder problem that we, we have very high rates of FASD in in particularly in the southern part of South Africa. So the DOP system was one of the factors. Obviously, alcohol also played a role in. In, a, in the resistance to apartheid, apartheid, the system where um, there was uh, segregation and and less political rights for people of color, and and then the uh, the, the beer the, yeah in, instead of drinking at beer halls, shabins or informal liquor establishments got established by local communities, which where people would get together, they would drink, socialize, and they would also probably talk politics often. And they became a form of resistance to apartheid. So, it's, so alcohol has had a, a very sort of interesting, particularly interesting history in South Africa, to the point that we are now a country with a an enormous alcohol problem. We don't we don't have a pattern, a responsible drinking pattern. We have a 
we have a lot of harm. It's it's um, alcohol creates a substantial burden. It's probably the fifth or sixth largest risk factor for death and disability in the country, and um, we stand out. We, we stand we stand in the highest risk countries in terms of the proportion of people who are dying with from alcohol related causes. So the burden is is tremendous, particularly in, in terms of trauma, in terms of alcohol related TB and HIV. And and now we're increasingly understanding the links with cancers and other forms of non-communicable diseases. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time I read this stat that 170 people died every day here from alcohol-related causes, I thought there'd been some kind of misprint. You know, I thought that zero was was wrongly placed. So it, it's massive, isn't it? The, that was uh, some research done by a PhD student of mine, and it showed that the burden was particularly great amongst males. And then, in terms of the socioeconomic breakdown, the poorest sectors of society the burden was greatest which which in fact reflects now new thinking that the the harm of alcohol is is highest in in countries with with lower socioeconomic levels and within countries the burden is highest per liter of alcohol consumed amongst the poorest sectors um and there there you know various reasons for that yeah yeah, I mean, the, I guess one of the reasons is that if you're you're in that sector, there's often, you know, here I think you're here in South Africa, the the stats of of young men without jobs and without much hope of a job it, is huge. You know, it's something like fifty percent, isn't it? So for for people like that, it, it must be so tempting to to just yeah. drink all the time. And in some communities, to... there isn't a lot of recreational facilities, you know. Exactly. So the the shabin or illicit outlet, because most of them are not are not licensed, is a place where people can can socialize, um, because there's not too many other you know recreational alt- alternatives. Plus, you're getting the the bombardment from the media that to be successful you need to you know consume consume alcohol and really successful people drink expensive spirits so there's yeah. a lot of pressure and it's also very very cheap that's one of the problems we have in south africa where um you know uh, one one south african rand i think i don't know you probably know better than me 50p or something like that mm-hmm. um no that's 50p is, is is 10 south african rand and um you know the we we're selling alcohol you can sometimes get cheap wine for three to four rand a standard unit of 12 grams we, we use 12 grams in south africa so it's it's incredibly cheap so when we talk about solutions that's one of the areas to look at yeah absolutely so let's let's get to our friend covid as it still seems to be with us sadly doesn't it i think we might be emerging from it one from the third wave anyway let's hope so but it, it struck me that this whole COVID thing here in South Africa, it's been like a massive social experiment, hasn't it, that we could never have actually implemented. The fact that there's been, I think, four alcohol bans and the fact that the government's been able to turn on this tap, you know, alcohol's either available or not available. When it's not available, suddenly there's space in hospitals for sick people. And that is such a a stark demonstration of, of the harm that alcohol does to South African society, isn't it? 
Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, certainly. Yeah, so I've been sort of living that the last sort of 18 months almost. I When I, I traveled back, I went to the Global Alcohol Policy Conference in, in Ireland in, in March last year and then came back and then immediately went into quarantine and then we got into lockdown. So, um, and it was very surprising that prior to our first lockdown, even there were restrictions on alcohol sales for, for um, a, f- a week or so when they said that you, um, they limited the hours of sale. But then we went into a hard lockdown on the 27th of March last year. And it was the, f- the beginning of a complete ban on alcohol sales, which I wouldn't have, have predicted. I think there's, um, you know, I, w- I was surprised that the government took such strong action because I think they've been fairly weak in, in many ways in, in dealing with alcohol issues. Um, so your, your um, listeners or viewers will be surprised perhaps to know that we've had 164 days since March last year when alcohol has not been allowed to be sold at all for on consumption or off consumption. And that's been spread around four um, periods of alcohol sales bans with the longest lasting for for 66 days. So um, during those times, the, the government, as I said, stopped alcohol sales completely. At, at times, they stopped the transportation of alcohol, and um, you could only cons- you could consume it in your own home. And as, as Janet was saying, it's a huge social experiment because um, we saw immediately a, a dramatic drop in the, the numbers of people, patients coming to trauma units with, with alcohol-related trauma. The, the trauma drop was about 60% in some, 50-60%. And it was almost instantaneous. And then after the first period of 66 days on the, on the 1st of June, the ban was lifted and immediately everything went, went crazy again. And the hospitals saw a, a huge rise. And we've had some time now to, to analyze it, to look at both the trauma data and the death data. And have been able to show that, and there's been times between those ban periods where we've had partial bans. Sometimes they've banned the on-consumption sales of alcohol at bars, taverns, restaurants, but they've allowed off-consumption purchasing, say, Monday to Thursday, but not the rest of the week. And clearly, we've shown that the full liquor sales bans are the, are, have had an incredible effect in terms of reducing both trauma and unnatural deaths in, in a very stark way. And... Um, there's been a lot of pushback from the liquor industry, which hasn't been very pleased with these findings. And they've tried to show that they've been related to mobility and the curfews. But in fact, our, our latest paper really unpacked that quite clearly in the South African Medical Journal. It was looking at unnatural deaths and the various phases of the alcohol bans. And it looked at the length of curfews and mobility and showed very clearly that that it was the ban on alcohol sales that was having the the, the big effect. Obviously, this is not a long-term solution for a country like South Africa, but it, what it does show is several things. It shows to me that, um, you know, that we have a government that is willing at times to take action. Um, it's disappointing that after the bans, they haven't implemented other steps to perhaps address the problem of heavy drinking. It, it shows that we can do something to change the problem that we have in South Africa with alcohol. It shows the lengths that the liquor industry has been prepared to go to to get things back on track again, and I could go into that if you if you like. Um, and I think it really yeah, it's really highlighted the burden that we have from 
from alcohol in terms particularly of, of, of trauma and, and injury and the burden on our health system. And we've heard the voices of healthcare workers who who just say that it's 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 chalk and cheese when there's no alcohol around. The, the smell of the mixture of alcohol and blood just goes away from the trauma unit. And it freed up capacity, which we could use then to, to treat COVID-19 patients. And I think it, it shows that there isn't another way of doing things. I think that's that's exciting. I've had a lot of opportunity. I've done over 200 interviews on radio and television and newspaper over this time period and and, and worked, we, we were working with others to sort of push an alternative agenda to particularly address the problem of, of heavy drinking in, in, in South Africa and to try and create a new a new normal. So there's been conversations about that and um, it's been, been an exciting, encouraging time in, in, in many ways. Yeah, it, it is exciting. I share your excitement there because it, it demonstrates, doesn't it, as you say, that something can be done. You know, we don't, government doesn't have to sit here passively and watch the carnage. Something can be done. And crime, obviously, I, I think the, wasn't it the murder stats? There was a dramatic drop in the number of murders during that, that hard lockdown period. So, um, so I would have thought... And dropped too. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to strengthen some of your arguments for, for making a change, you know, to, yes. to at least... There are other things, too. I think when you look at the relation between alcohol and COVID, and that's something I looked at particularly in the beginning, it's interesting to look at, at that in different ways. We've talked about the link between alcohol and trauma and alcohol and, and um, hospital capacity. But I think it's also raised, it also, things came to the fore, which I wasn't that aware of, like the link between alcohol and lung health, lung health and immunity. And it became very clear that heavy drinkers have compromised lung health, which also makes them more at risk for, for catching COVID and also for having a, particularly for having a worse, worse outcome. So that's something that's been, that's also gained, gained more attention. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Alcohol, our bodies kind of treat alcohol as if it's a disease almost. So the immune system gets all flared up and we get all that inflammation. So then if, if we're drinking heavily and then our body has to cope with COVID as well, you know, it's often too much. And there is evidence that uh, people that have ended up in ICU that are heavy drinkers, they've had you know, less chance of survival than, than people that, that don't drink. And I, I wondered, I mean, maybe I missed it, but as you know, the media here, it was just 24-7, wasn't it? COVID, COVID. But I never heard any interviews really about the, the damage that alcohol does to our immune system. There seemed to be no effort to get that, that information out there. No, not even the sort of area of alcohol and lung health. And certainly we know from our work with alcohol and HIV and TB that it does affect the, the immune system and, and increase your, your risk of having, having worse, worse outcomes. And also we found work I did earlier with alcohol and HIV is that alcohol interacts with the medications taken to treat HIV and the side effects. And, and it's there's sort of a multiplicative effect going on. So it's sort of 
it has a negative effect on the meds, medicines working in your body to treat infectious diseases. So, I believe there is an argument to um, not take alcohol during a few days before and after the uh, COVID vaccination. But again, you know, I haven't heard anything about that uh, in the media. I think um, the UK have put out some kind of regulations about that, some kind of recommendations rather. So, uh, yeah, we yes. could definitely do with a bit more They said to people to cut down on drinking if, you, if you're taking your vaccine and, and afterwards. In, in view of all this harm, you know, that it would be, I, I, obviously we knew it before, but just such a, a stark demonstration. It, it made me think of that study that I'm sure you're familiar with that was done in the UK by Professor Nutz because uh, he looked at the harm that alcohol does to individuals um, compared with other with hard drugs and then the harm that alcohol does to society and I believe that the harm it does to individuals, it's about number four, and it actually comes higher than cocaine and, um, you know, benzos and those kind of drugs, uh, and even higher than tobacco. Yet the harm that alcohol does to society, it comes out as number one. And um, it's, it's really something that uh, more people need to be aware of, I think, isn't it? Yeah, that was a, a study that got quite a lot of attention, I suppose. It could have been 10 or so years ago. It got published in, oh, the, yes. in the Lancet oh. Journal. And I heard David Nutt speak at a, at a conference I was attend- or a meeting I was attending in, in Barcelona. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was incredible that you tend to think that heroin would be, would be more harmful, for example. But um, when you take it together, the harm to society, and, in fact, there's a growing... Uh, area of research looking at alcohol harm to others, which looks looks at the various ways in which alcohol harms the people around the drinker and also, uh, and, you know, the burden to society. And I think that's something that, you know, we, we talk about passive smoking, but we don't really talk about passive drinking because you're not, you're not, you, but, but there is a huge effect on on others and, and non-drinkers. And I think that's something, in, for example, in a country like South Africa, where where 69% of adults don't drink, and if you add the youth population, we're probably talking about 75% of the population or more don't even drink, but yet um, carrying the, the huge burden in terms of you know the economic costs, which actually research has shown when you look at them in their entirety, outweigh the the benefits that we get from you know excise taxes and value-added taxes from alcohol. They're far far outweigh it, so that each each person, whether they're a drink or not, if they're paying taxes or that, is is subsidizing, you know, alcohol consumption in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the same in the UK. And I think often the dilemma is for government that they want that tax in as an immediate um, injection, don't they? Whereas the, the burden on the healthcare, maybe they'll think, oh, well, these people won't be sick until a few years down the line. So the uh, it's a bit of a balancing act there. Um, I wanted to quote you, back to you. <laughs> I hope you remember saying this, you weren't misquoted. But um, you published a study last month to, to help policymakers to develop strategies to reduce alcohol harm. And you said that these include stricter advertising and promotion restrictions, minimum unit pricing, increased excise taxes, raising the minimum drinking age, restrictions on container sizes, among others. 
So the, these all sound absolutely great ideas. And I just wanted to ask you how you present those, who you present them to, and, and how hopeful you are about them being implemented. I guess it's 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 a long as a long term strategy that one does in various ways. Um, Way back in 98, I published a book on alcohol policy and public health in South Africa with Oxford University Press and you know, made lots of copies and I got someone to sponsor it and we, we gave away lots of copies. I think, you know, talking to the media, I've probably done over, you know, eight, over 800 or more interviews over the last 25 years or so. So there is, is that platform. I've spoken at, at meetings organized by by policymakers, by the National Department of Health, Department of Trade and Industry. Sometimes I'm the only public health voice in those forums. I've worked with at city government level, the city of Cape Town on an alcohol strategy, um, with the Western Cape government, the, um, the uh, alcohol harm reduction white paper, green paper. And one uses, you know, less, less formal, you know, You've got at conferences, I'm certainly not afraid to send copies of papers to cabinet ministers or directors general. And then over time, one builds builds relationships with people. So sometimes you even get get uh, get called up for for advice. So this COVID time has increased the 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 um, the dialogue. It's 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 a dialogue. It's not like um, the last. I've spoken a couple of times in the last year to the Health Portfolio Committee on. Portfolio Committee of Health in Parliament, uh, several times to the ANC, the, the ruling party's health study group in Parliament. And um, so there are various doors one uses. Sometimes you sit on, on um, media shows and, you know, this, for example, I was on one with the Premier of the Western Cape and, you know, I was speaking from a public health side. And you, you know, write articles into to newspapers like a conversation more uh, the Daily Maverick, um, and yeah, you do interviews, and hopefully those articles get written, read. I mean, you write an, a letter sometimes to, to Business Day, or you get interviewed by by journalists, and or speaking to the radio. You hope that influential people are or, or key stakeholders are listening to those those forums. So I think there are various means of getting the message across. I think the message has got across. I would like to see it be acted upon more often. But um, I do get consulted sometimes, you know, giving inputs to the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID several times and was very influential on a task team looking into what the impact would be of implementing a second ban on liquor sales. And that report um, was didn't involve some modelling and it fed into the decision to implement a second liquor sales ban in South Africa in mid-July last year. Oh, well, you're certainly working tirelessly for change. And yeah, I think alcohol really needs to have a cigarette moment, doesn't it? Do you remember? I mean, I'm so old that I remember smoking in an office in my 20s. And we were all smoking, you know, big office, 10 people. You'd open your packet, you'd take out a cigarette and you'd toss one round. We all smoked and there must have been a, a fog in that room. And that was at the BBC, would you believe? And we all used to smoke, and none of us knew. I mean, there were some highly intelligent people in that room, um, and nobody really knew it was bad for us because, you know, it was never mentioned in the media. We didn't know it could give you lung cancer. And then something magical happened in that in the UK, uh, advertising got banned in publications. So suddenly the media 
there were articles saying cigarettes are bad for you, cigarettes give you lung cancer. And it was like, oh my God, you know, so many of us in that room, we, we gave up. So, uh, you know, I think that a lot of the media are strangled a little bit by the liquor advertising uh, industry. And, and in fact, I, I met a, a lady that worked for a glossy magazine, which will be nameless. Uh, but she said, oh, I know about your work. You know, I'd really like to write a story on you. So I said, oh, well, feel free. And she said, well, I can't because 70% of our income for the magazine comes from the liquor industry. You know, it was all about pretty cocktails and bubbly for ladies and things. So so that, that means that we are, we're not, the, the truth about alcohol is not in the public domain simply. And that's why, you know, the work that you're doing is, is yeah, so great. Yeah, just... Interesting point there. I mean, I think I've become aware that there, there are at least a couple of major consulting, international consulting firms, which are actually there supporting the liquor industry and pushing back against government, government's responses to addressing the alcohol COVID link, for example. And they're, you know, I, I'm convinced that they're probably writing the stories because they can, at, at some point, they were coming out two or three stories per day. And certainly someone I spoke to with associated to the liquor industry said that that this was an article which, in fact, you know, was attacking me that, in fact, was written by someone else and her name was added to it. So, you know, I think there's a campaign out there to to uh, control the narrative and to push back on strategies which might work, but which would which would probably work. There's evidence for them, but which would hit the industry's bottom line. And also to discredit um, people who are standing out against um, against heavy drinking and, and calling for for reform in this in this area. And certainly, uh, I was contacted once by a digital forensic uh, analyst who said that you know that he had evidence that there were various people who were targeted by by people with links to the liquor industry to attack ministers and public health people, researchers like myself. He had my name on the list. With a script to to create false, you know, um, you know, social media accounts, and well, not false, but they just people weren't there. They were just sort of fake ones, and to to try and get the the narrative out. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's not always a pleasant space to be working in, because there's a lot of money involved, huge profits involved, and it's oh. it's interesting that despite the the um, the uh, rhetoric from the liquor industry that they've taken a hammering over the last year. If you look at the profits from some companies, um, it seems that most of them have actually made money during this time, even in South Africa with its liquor bans. Obviously, not everybody in the, in the liquor trade has made money, but the, the big liquor producers have continued. You know, if you look at the the, you know, the media statements from Distel and South African breweries and Heineken, it seems that they've they've made they've had quarters. And, and periods where they've made substantial profits, even double-digit profits during during this time, and we've had liquor bans too. So you know, um, you know, I think mm -hmm. some of the you know wine sales and spirits has has picked up because people are 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 buying beforehand and and, and after the bans are lifted. So so maybe there's a, a, a shortage during the um, the ban period, but um, afterwards people are, are stocking up again. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. 
Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen rumors going around on, on social media a lot saying, oh, there's going to be a ban next week. Better go out and buy lots of wine, kind of thing. So, so I guess it's it's happened that way, hasn't it? Just suppose you were the president of South Africa. There's a lovely job for you, Charles. What would you do about this? Because they've got such a a balancing act, haven't they? I mean, so many jobs are dependent on, you know, so so many livelihoods are dependent on the alcohol industry. How on earth do you balance that, you know, protecting people from the harm a little bit and, and not destroying the economy? Yeah, I think there's perhaps a little bit of a false narrative there. I think we we think that it's it's got to be everything's got to stay the same, and that we will be worse off if there's less alcohol around. But I think I think we do have to move to a context where there's where the per capita amount of alcohol needs to drop substantially by 10, 20 percent, and and that you know that will have an effect to some of the the, the players in the industry. Um, depend on heavy drinking for the profits, as I was saying. And if and if people drank less, then then the, the industries wouldn't make the profits that the shareholders expect, as as I've said before. So, you know, if you you said if if I was President Ramaphosa, what would I do? I think the first thing I would do is develop a, develop a clear plan of action to address our problem with heavy drinking. It's embarrassing being the, the sixth highest nation in the world in terms of the amount of alcohol consumed per drinker. And to have, you know, to continue to see the negative fallout, it can't be business as usual. This, you know, it's, it's um, it, things need to change and we need to address heavy drinking. I've been called a, a prohibitionist, which, which, which I'm not. But that's an easy label for people who are lazy and don't want to grapple with the nuances of what I'm saying. So my focus really is, is, is yes, everyone needs to know the harmful effect of alcohol. And even one or two drinks per day will increase a person's risk, for example, of breast cancer. So first of all, I think I would develop a clear, a clear plan, which isn't overly ambitious and trying to do everything, because that's what we tend to do. We have a national drug master plan, which has got so many caveats that it's it's sort of very hard to implement because it's trying to do everything. So the plan would focus on 10, 20 areas at most, and there would be clear objectives so that you can see whether you are meeting those objectives, clear timelines, delivery mechanisms, and, and clear outcomes that you're trying to achieve. So I think the first thing I would look at is, is around um, pricing, excise taxes, and look at whether whether we have the appropriate level of, of excise tax and where where some things need to change there. Marketing, I think we need to look at our marketing of alcoholic beverages, uh, including things like internet marketing. So I think we, we perhaps need to move to where we were in 2013 when Cabinet approved the uh, Control of Marketing of Alcoholic Beverages Bill, which actually said we're not going to have marketing on alcoholic beverages except at points of sale but because we have we, are, we have a problem no one's saying you can't drink but we shouldn't be promoting it to the degree that we do if you look at the kind of budgets we spend on marketing the industry says it's just to get people to choose brand a versus brand b but uh, i think there's more and more evidence showing that it's also to get new drinkers into the market and get people to to drink more Beer and cider shouldn't be sold in, in, in containers larger than half a litre and wine and spirits in, in a 750 milliliter bottle. 
so those kind of products we'd address. Drink driving. Uh, our main problem here is lack of enforcement. Uh, how often does one go through a roadblock and get stopped? But um, government is talking about moving to a zero blood alcohol maximum level for drivers. We have a huge problem with injured drunk pedestrians and injured drunk drivers and passengers. So we've got to do something different um, around that. People can get Ubers if they want to go to restaurants or have a designated driver. It works in countries like the UK. Uh, we also have an issue of alcohol availability. Much of our sale in, in poorer areas happens through unreg unregistered, unlicensed outlets. And how can you have a product like alcohol sold through an outlet which isn't being properly enforced? So here, I think we need to look at uh, bringing some of those unregistered outlets into the regulated mar market. But then there are those who never going to get licensed. We need to, to really clamp down on and, 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 and people need to find other, 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 other occupations than trying to make a living from alcohol. We need to support other income generation schemes because some people are making a subsistence living from, from selling alcohol. So I don't want to be insensitive to that. Then something we haven't talked about, which really is also an issue during COVID, is, is treatment for people who have a problem with alcohol dependence or heavy drinking. And we didn't show enough sensitivity to, we just switched off alcohol and we didn't really, we told people, don't keep away from our hospitals, you're going to get exposed to COVID. And there were people who were struggling with alcohol dependence and withdrawal. And I think we weren't very sensitive in that area. So I think we do need to make tr more treatment available, be it what we call uh, pharmacotherapy, uh, where you give uh, medication to help people over the withdrawal phase, particularly psychotherapy, 12-step programs, AA, those kind of things, to help people who are who need assistance. And I think your your um, podcasts, you, you do a lot of work in this area, helping people, Janet, who who are trying to, to find a new relationship without alcohol. People use alcohol as a coping mechanism. And I think we need to be honest about it. We need to destigmatize it, have those conversations and say, you know what, you can actually, you know, without without drinking or without excessive drinking, you can you can you're going to live a lot a lot more of a healthier life. And these are the benefits. And I think education is key. You know, I run these workshops and you know people come along and I make a presentation on all the harm that alcohol does, you know, the fact that it's linked to seven different types of cancer and etc. And people are amazed, you know, and these are, are bright people with good jobs. People don't realise, a lot of people have no idea just how harm, harmful it is. And a lot of people, that, well, in my kind of community are quite similar to me. And, and my story was that I drank kind of relatively normally in my 20s and 30s as a social thing. And then gradually I started using it, just as you said, as a coping mechanism, you know, getting home from work, opening the bottle and um, using it to relax and to get rid of stress. And then gradually that, that creeps up on you over the years until you find yourself, you know, late 50s and thinking, oh, I must cut down on my drinking a bit. And then you can't and you realise you're totally hooked on the stuff. And you, you can't cut down, you have to ditch it and then, you know, you're, you're fine eventually. But it's a tough, a tough year, that first year without it. So, though, you know, I really think that education is key. And the more that we can educate people about alcohol and the harm it does, the, 
the more people will individually uh, give up. You know, I means regulations and, and rules are one thing, but there's also personal choice and if they can be more of a societal shift. And I do get the impression that is, that is ha happening in some quarters. Uh, I think in the UK, the, the young people are not drinking like I used to drink when I was their age. And another glimmer of hope is the enormous explosion in alcohol-free drinks. I mean, there's, I think it's uh, SAB or InBev, whatever they call these days, um, have have a forecast that something like 25% of their turnover would be alcohol-free drinks in five years' time, something like that. And the, the fact that they're investing so much money in researching in this area and then, of course, coming up with products. And they're doing well. I mean, the alcohol-free beer is tremendous. You know, it really doesn't taste very different to real beer at all. That's been a great boon for the males that, that want to give up drinking. And it does um, really help us to adjust our behavior. And if, um, if it could become more socially acceptable <laughs> to, to not drink, then I think a, a lot of people would find it easier because there's there's huge peer pressure and the still. taxes it's cheap could should be cheaper I mean that's they should try and make it a bit because not paying the excise duty exactly yes yeah but but I think alcohol is still the only drug we have to justify not taking <laughs> yeah but I think education is is so key because uh, if we don't educate ourselves I think the movies will educate us and the advertisements will educate us into believing that alcohol is, is some glamorous product that we all need in our lives. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. The other thing I didn't really talk about was, I think, was minimum unit pricing, which has actually um, been quite successful in, in, in Scotland. It's been rolled out in, in Wales. It's been used in um, British Columbia and Canada. And certainly there's a lot of effort going into into trying to move that agenda forward in, in South Africa. Um, research studies, some papers have come out even this year, and I've got a PhD student who's got, um, we just had a paper accepted on that, and another one that's under review, and we're going to be looking at how do we move forward the agenda for, for minimum unit pricing, which, which certainly our modeling so far shows that it will, it will affect the heavy drinkers, um, perhaps less than the moderate or light drinkers, but it will have an effect. And we've actually done some modeling about how, you know, the health impact of, of minimum unit pricing in terms of the economic benefits to the country and in terms of the, the lower levels of different, different kinds of alcohol rate harms. So, so watch the space. I think we're going to see yeah. it move towards minimum unit pricing in, in South Africa. Yeah, I'm sure there's been some success in, I think it's Scotland or somewhere that they've, they've been trying that. That worked quite but well. So, yes, education, yeah. but we've got to also keep pushing from the upstream drivers because sometimes with the best will in the war world, it's, it's helpful if you're in a context which also makes it a bit yes. more expensive, a bit harder to get larger containers. 
uh, less marketing in your face telling you that to be success successful, you've got to be a drinker and, and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking the other day about my parents who didn't drink much at all. And they would, uh, if it was a birthday or someone was coming round or they were making a special meal, there'd be a bottle of wine there, you know, and it was like a big deal. And then when I was in my 20s, it would be so normal to do a weekend shop. You know, you go to Sainsbury's and you pile you know, 12, 14 bottles of wine in, maybe a bottle of Jack Daniels for, for good luck. And it was cheap, you know, well, it is cheap. It's even cheaper now, I think. And it, it's just been so normalised. And I think we've, you know, we, we often forget how normalised it's been, you know, certainly talking about the UK. But talking about other countries now, just to to finish off, we could talk all day, but I mustn't dominate your your time too much. You, you said we're, I think, number six in the top countries for drinking. Uh, who are the other five? Who's number one? I Eastern can't remember. Europe. There were some Eastern European countries. There was yeah. the um, Iswatini, Swaziland, and a couple of other African <laughs> countries in there as well. Um, and Russia. Russia had some success, haven't they, in, in improving? They have, in fact. And I think they're a, a model that I try and say that you know South Africa should look at in terms of bringing down. They had they in fact they brought down their the well their life expectancy particularly for men raised rose dramatically after some reforms in the two thousands and they looked at at taxation at marketing they had this they dealt with illicit alcohol sales and so on so it was a basket of measures which 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 did have an impact so I think. We, it's one of the areas you can look to Russia for having done something. Yeah, there. so if a huge country like that with all those kind of vodka swilling <laughs> males can, can do something, and I'm I think sure South Africa Because the, 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 uh, the global north, I think, is seeing a reduction in alcohol use. And the, the big liquor players are looking to, to Latin America, Asia and to Africa because of the youthful population to, to grow their sales. So I think we... We have to be on our toes. Uh, they're using sports stars to to market their yeah. products, and I think this is where the this is where the the, the, the battle is at. So um, South Africa is, is an exciting place to be working in this field, and um, we hope to have our the big global alcohol policy conference in 2023 in, in Cape Town, where we can hopefully also keep keep this on the agenda, learn from the rest of the world, and also showcase hopefully some of the things that we hope to hope the policy change, some policy changes will take place before then. Thank you, Charles. That was such an interesting conversation. There's so much information in there. Let's try and pull out a few key facts. Although many people in South Africa don't drink at all, the ones who do drink are drinking excessively. We're definitely a nation of binge drinkers. A whole industry exists which makes a profit from these heavy drinkers, profits which are now demanded by the shareholders of the liquor industry. Charles talked about the tricky role which alcohol has played in the history of this country, almost as a tool of oppression. During apartheid, miners who lived far from home and had nothing to do in the evening would drink in beer holes, which of course provided more profits for the liquor suppliers. And then, of course, you had the DOP system, where farm workers received part of their wages in alcohol, creating a generation of dependent drinkers. 
and also playing into the tragic fact that South Africa has incredibly high levels of fetal alcohol syndrome. The DOP system is now, of course, prohibited, but alcohol remains a major source of harm. 170 people die every day of alcohol-related causes here, and the burden on the healthcare system is tremendous. Of course, poverty and the unemployment rate also play a big role in the binge drinking culture, lack of alternative recreational activities, and the lack of jobs, hope for a future, as well as peer pressure, all have an influence. Young people are also convinced by the marketing industry that successful people drink, usually spirits, usually expensive brands of whiskey or brandy. Charles explained to us how involved he's been in the fallout from the pandemic over the last 18 months. He talked to us about the four alcohol bans and the fact that every time alcohol was banned, the admission to hospital trauma units fell by a staggering 60%, which of course released space for COVID patients, which was why the government had done it in the first place. It's been like a massive social experiment. It's been like turning a tap on and off. Medical staff talked of the changing nature of their work and that their trauma units no longer smelt of blood and alcohol during the alcohol bans. We discussed how alcohol weakens the immune system and how COVID patients who were heavy drinkers had poorer chances of survival than non-drinkers. The liquor industry, of course, pushed back against the alcohol bans and lamented their lost profits. But this was rather a false rhetoric because, in fact, their profit had increased due to people stocking up before the bans. The impact of alcohol on South African society always makes me think of the old study done by Professor Nutt in the UK. He concluded that not only was alcohol number four in the top ten harmful drugs to the individual, but it was actually number one when it came to the harm that alcohol does to society much higher than all the hard drugs put together. Which then made me think of the fact that globally, three million people a year die from alcohol-related causes, every single year, and nothing ever happens. The marketing and the normalization continues. But during 2020, about three million people died of COVID, and the whole world closed down. Isn't it ironic? So during our conversation, we also touched on solutions. Now, obviously, banning alcohol forever is not a possibility, but the bans have proved to Charles that government is prepared to take drastic action when required. The bans have proved that something can be done, and government needs to implement a plan of measures that will address this problem. Charles shared with us some of his ideas, some of which he's already presented to government. COVID has actually strengthened his case with the stark reminder of the harm that alcohol is doing to South African society. Professor Parry posts daily on his Twitter account some really great links and comments on there, so please follow him if you can. We need to support the great work he's doing. His Twitter handle is at Prof Parry. Now here in South Africa, we've just moved into spring. Every year, Tribe Sober runs a Sober Spring Challenge, 66 alcohol-free days with online audio and community support. It's great fun because we put our challenges on what we call the Sober Spring Bus, which is actually a WhatsApp group. 
and then they travel through their 66 days together. We run two buses every year. The first Sober Spring bus left last week, and our second bus will leave on the 27th of September. So please go to tribesober.com if you'd like a bit more info. And even if it's not spring where you live, you can do a sober autumn. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. And I'll see you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain. And we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.